Lord Jesus, uh, God, you're so good. And I just pray that this morning that uh, what I have to say about you, what we have to think about you, is purely uh, praise to you. It's just purely uh, us knowing who you are and you knowing who we are. And uh, Lord, I pray nothing comes in between that um, that experience for us, Lord. And uh, Lord, I pray that whatever we brought in this room, whatever uh, pain, whatever struggle, I pray that you take those things from us that we can repent and hand those things over back to you, Jesus, where they belong. Lord, I pray that you, you, you're on full display this morning. Thank you so much for these people that are willing to come here. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's get right to it. Um, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We're still in chapter 15. We're just chugging along uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, but... Uh, so, in this chapter, Luke 15, if you're flipping there, um, if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those red ones uh, underneath the seat. Uh, it's our gift to you. Um, but anyways, in this chapter, uh, I, I like to call it one of Jesus' biggest table-flipping moments. His table-flipping truth moments, right? So, uh, you know, like when Jesus goes into the temple, uh, people are buying, people are selling stuff, uh, and he goes in and just rebukes this. He, he says, basically... You guys thought this way, and you thought this was right. You thought this was an okay thing to do. This was your worldview. I'm going to tell you what. I'm going to say, nope. I'm going to throw that little tyke's playset uh, out the window, and I'm going to present to you my father's table, where we feast, where I welcome you, where I want to invite you to come here and listen to truth, to my worldview, to my celebration about your life in finding me. So uh, in the past two weeks, we've been going through a couple of different parables, yeah, the first one being about a lost sheep. The second one being about a lost coin. I'm just kind of recap it. You can go back and listen to the podcast, but for the sake of right now, uh, I'm just going to recap a little bit. So the lost sheep basically found himself in a state of lostness because of choices that it made it, that it made that ultimately led to it being lost. Right? Whereas the coin, instead of choices that it made. The coin was lost because of things that happened to it. Um, like the coin doesn't just walk around and make poor decisions on its own. It's a coin. It was affected by its surroundings, the people around it. It was lost because of what happened to it. So in the first story, Jesus, um, he flips this table that tells us uh, that there's no way God could ever love me because I've gone too far. There's no way uh, he could forgive me that even if I came back to him, there's no way that he would uh, want to have anything to do with me uh, because I've gone that far. And he flips this table that when we believe that, he says, no, 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 you're not coming to me. I'm coming to you. Yeah, you walked away from me, but I'm not going to leave it up to you to come back to me. I'm going to come get you. And when I find you, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to turn you into some fuzzy wool sweater. I'm going to put you over my arms and rejoice that I found you, that I'm bringing you back home. And the resounding truth uh, that we see in that passage a couple weeks ago is when Jesus says this. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And so in the second story, uh, this lady loses her coin, 
right? She loses this silver coin, and a silver coin was a day's worth of wages. Uh, But she already had nine other coins kind of saved up. Like, she wasn't in a huge financial bind, because in that culture, you were pretty wealthy if you had more than what you needed for tomorrow. Really. But she loses one of these coins, and she just goes absolutely nuts. She sweeps the whole house just to find this coin, and there's this uh, table that Jesus flips, right, Uh, that tells us of what worth is it to go and find that one coin when you have plenty to spare at home. Like, you don't need to find that one coin. But Jesus answers that. He flips the table. He says, it's worth everything for me to find that coin. I've paid the price for that coin. It is mine, and I want it back. And again, he kind of repeats himself in the parable that we went over last week. He says this, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So after these two different things, very different things, are lost, and then they're found, we're led up to the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Probably the most well-known passage, uh, parable out of the three And uh, we're going to start in verse 11. It says this. Oh, it is working. Okay. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there... He squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in, the, in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said... How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And we're going to stop right there because there's just so much material in this passage, uh, so much truth to be found. We're actually going to be, this whole parable, we're going to split it into two different uh, sermons next week on Easter. uh, We're going to dive right into the second part. Uh, But we're going to stop right here for now. And what we're going to actually look look at in the next couple of weeks is that this parable offers us two sons, two prodigal sons. The younger son, in which we're probably more familiar with, that he just blatantly rejects his father, he lives lavishly, spends all of his inheritance, and then there's the older brother that's just too righteous and entitled for his own good. Right? We, have, we didn't get to there, but we will next week. Um, we're going to camp on the first half right now and end up uh, on, uh, talking about the older brother next week and kind of the father's heart for both. It's going to be an awesome Easter service. And uh, after a lot of prayer and thought, uh, we kind of found that in this parable, it, it's, it, it's awesome that it, we kind of landed on this part right when Easter comes because it's such a huge demonstration of God's love for us, how, why he came, why he died, why he was resurrected. It's a huge um, demonstration of the gospel. And it's going to be a treat. I would encourage you to bring uh, everybody that you know and uh, we can worship together. But let's get back to our passage. 
this morning. Uh, in this passage, basically with all the parables that we find in Scripture, one of the absolute greatest insights that we gain from Jesus' parables and how we can be radically changed by them is when we identify who Jesus is talking to, like in person, like who he's talking with, and then who he's talking about in the parable. Because when we identify with who he's talking to, we then find ourselves identified as the one who he's talking about, right? Because we see their hearts in the story. We see their hearts in the parable. And Jesus is like, this is your heart. This is your life, and I want to show you through this story. Um, and he's basically just holding up a mirror to our hearts. And uh, he says, what are you going to do with it? How does it look to you? How do I look to you? So if we take it back uh, to the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, Luke states this. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Um, so the tax collectors and sinners, Right? Let me tell you about the life and the social status of tax collectors and sinners. They didn't have neither. They didn't have a life. They didn't have a social status. Nobody cared about them. Nobody talked about them. Uh, they, they were the outcasts. They were the scum of the earth. Have you ever, like when you peel a banana, like that little end that's like gross and you don't want to eat it? Like that's, that's them. They're worthless. Like they're unwanted. The sinners are unwanted. And the sinners in this, when he refers to him in this, he's not talking about like how you and I refer to each other as like sinners. He's, he's saying like, these people are the sick. They're the, the prostitutes, the, the, the lost ones, the outcasts. And then there's the tax collectors. And everybody around town despised the tax collectors, right? They, they, they took money from people. They took money from the people in their town that ultimately funded the Rome, Roman Empire and the, and the army that's ultimately going to plunder, that's going to rape, that's going to kill um, the people in that same town. Like they're taking your money so that you don't just suffer financially, but you're going to suffer physically as well, as well. These guys were the thieves. They were the despised. And they were also the outcasts. So that's the first group that, uh, of people that Luke states. The verse 2 shows us the second. It says, And the Pharisees and the scribes, this is just a classic, they grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Classic Pharisee. <laughs> so these Pharisees, these guys, they're, they're always around Jesus. They're always there uh, in the story, kind of telling him why, why he's hanging out with the wrong people, where he's kind of going wrong, why he's not following the law faithfully. These guys are pretty much the morally upright, the self-righteous, the, the, the elites of the Jewish faith. And to be completely honest, they were way better than anybody in this room. Like they were way better than any of us. Like the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, they memorized it. Like that was a requirement. They memorized five books that we barely can even read through. Right? They followed the law. They do everything that they need to. They pray every prayer and they take every step that the law states and they follow every rule. But their greatest weakness was that they thought by doing all these things, I'm going to win myself over to righteousness. I'm going to win myself over to what 
God is saying in his word, but they were so, so wrong. And, and Jesus shows us that in this passage. So these two groups of people, they play massive roles in the parable uh, in, in the overall pair, uh, picture of what's going on in this chapter. And uh, I kind of want to right now focus on the outcasts because we're looking at the younger brother. We're looking at the, the, tra- the people that leave their, their traditional um, family morals they, they, they squander, they make terrible decisions. Um, I find myself in that place more often making terrible decisions um, outside of my uh, father's will. So let's look at the character, uh, character traits of the younger brother real quick and just so we can kind of relate to him. Uh, he says, um, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me And he divided his property between them. Okay, first of all, if I said that to my dad, I would literally be dead right now. (laughs) If I asked of that from him, it would be, I'd be trash, okay? So, um, and this guy, he has the nerve to say like, hey dad, I know you're going to give me everything when you die. So um, why don't you just kind of make it a little bit easier for me uh, and, and just die right now and give me uh, all of your stuff. Or you can just give me it anyways because you're as good to me as dead. I mean, that's pretty much what he's saying when he says, I want my inheritance now, not when you croak later. But, so what I want to do for the rest of our time uh, this morning is look at key, there are three things, key expository remarks, three takeaways that we get from this passage about what it's saying about the people in it and what it says about us as the listeners, as the readers. The first one is this. That this parable exposes the desires of our hearts. It exposes the desires of our hearts. In the passage, verse 13, states, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a, a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So not only did he shame his father in asking for his inheritance, um, the father actually gives him the inheritance, which is insane. Uh, he takes his dad's cash. He goes off into a country. He, he spends all of it. He makes terrible decisions. It doesn't really go into much detail in the passage, but we can just kind of imagine the choices that he made to lead him to where he's at. Because uh, I've probably done some of those things. I've probably experienced some of what he's experienced, made those choices. And it's probably safe to say that his rock bottom, where he found himself after all that, probably isn't like what we would call our rock bottom that might be a little bit more severe. If you have hit that rock bottom where it's that severe, like God bless you, you are healed, you are redeemed from that thing, and you are so loved. But for me, one of, the, one of the most harmful ways that I can read this passage like this is that I can say, well, I, I would never rebel against God like that bad. I would never do that. Or what about this one? Uh, like this parable, you know, doesn't really apply to me because I've already returned to God. I've already repented. I, I've already, you know, gone through the process. Why would I have to repent again? Why would I need further forgiveness? The desire of our hearts. 
is what we're looking at. The desire of our hearts is to wander from God. It's the desire of our hearts. And we go about trying, like, trying so hard to justify following our own heart. And being like this free spirit. It's like super cool now to, to, to be held down by nothing. To not have to report to anybody. To go, kind of go against the grain. To be a free spirit. To follow your own heart. For you to be you. You do you. Well, if I'm following my heart, I want to look at what my heart's doing See how I might follow it, I guess. So Jeremiah 17, 9, it says this about the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's desperately sick. Why would we follow that? Why would we follow our heart? When God says your heart, your desires is to, to sin. I want you to have my desires of living life, of finding joy, of being um, filled by pure life and not in sin. And when we wander from God, when we tell him that we're not going to be associated with him, we're basically saying, I don't need you, Father. I'm fine on my own. And the funny thing is, is I look at this, the guy in the parable I'm like, is that you being fine on your own? Don't we do this stuff with God's blessing? We want so much stuff from him. We want creation. We want all of these things more than we want the creator. We want to be blessed, but we don't really care who it's bless- who's blessing us or what it is that's blessing us. We just want to receive blessings. We go on living our lives with these just absolute blessings that, that God gives us that we don't deserve without recognizing it. And we just say, I'm fine on my own. And then we run from him with all the stuff that's his. And running away from God starts by feeling super free. Like, why wouldn't it? I'm, 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 I have nobody to report to. I'm super free now. This is, this is the best thing ever. But it always ultimately ends in isolation. Everything that we pick aside from God is going to be temporary solutions to eternal longings. We find regret. We find shame. Or even worse, we find pride and don't even want to mention that we've ever gone wrong. See, when we get attached to those things, we find bondage to them, not freedom. When we break our attachment with God, you're going to be attached to another thing. That's just how it works. Whatever it is, whether it's, you know, drinking a little bit or drinking a lot or, you know, getting a little high or if it's like pornography or if it's like, uh, I don't know, you're like your job, like you're just attached to it, or like your spouse, you, you create a God in them. You, you, when we flee from God, the things that are so, that would love to replace him slip right in, like so quick, and you don't even notice it. And they promise a lot, but they offer so little, and it's just so easy to get to this place for me. Like, I find myself getting to that place so often because if I'm not founded in Christ, literally everything around me becomes an idol or it has the potential to, right? 
In fact, John Calvin, uh, the great reformer um, in the Protestant Reformation, he, he said this about our hearts and our nature. The heart... Oh, come on. Ooh. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We are a perpetual factory of idols. We create idol after idol after idol. We make much of ourselves. We make much of the things around us. And we kind of want to put God on the back burner and and only report to him when it's beneficial to us. We want to report to him when we want encouragement. We want to seek his uh, blessing when we're just feeling really low. And if you think worship, if you think of worship as giving your full attention, your full life's attention to something, I'm going to ask you this right now. What is it that you worship the most? This leads us to the second parable uh, or the second point that I want to kind of draw from this parable. This parable reminds us of the cost of rebelling against God. See, rebellion against Jesus is what leads people astray. It's what makes lost people lost. And our rebellion, the the substance of it, the action of it, is completely and solely just made up of sin. Like, that's that's what sin is. The desire to flee from what is holy and seek joy, peace, and pleasure in all the things of this world and all of the things that uh, can never fulfill us. We seek those things in that. Isn't this kind of where we're at with the garden? It's the problem that we ran into. Humanity sought that, that in which the creator God had set aside as forbidden. And then Adam and Eve, uh, their intention wasn't to just kind of have like a midday snack or something. Uh, they, they weren't kind of tricked into it from, you know, Satan just kind of, you know, he, it's just Satan. He's just trying to trick me into it. No, they willingly rebelled against God. That's sin. They willingly did that. They thought that there was something worth their while outside of their perfect relationship with their creator. They sought and they sinned against a holy God. Sometimes that isn't really like real to me. Sometimes like I'll say, Lord, forgive me for I've sinned again. But a lot of the time I present my sins to God in the most surface level, the most routine way that I can just to kind of get it out of the way, just kind of move on, and to be completely honest, when I, when I do that, when I offer to him a guilt-driven and a sugar-coated prayer that makes little of my actual sin just so I can feel less guilty, it mocks Christ's work on the cross. And it actually does nothing when it comes to me being healed and me being redeemed from those things. Romans six twenty three. This should be the heart of our repentance for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the free gift. For the wages of sin is death. Do I act like this? Do I think this way when I'm doing what I'm doing? When I log onto my computer, when I open up my phone, am I actually thinking that what I look at is either going to give me life or it's going to give me death? 
Because over time, these tiny little things that I'll look at for a second, and then, you know, I just get accustomed to looking at it, and I'm like, over time, those things kill you. Over time, those things kill your relationship. Over time, those things that bring death will ultimately bring death in what is great in your life. And this is really heavy stuff. When you start acting like little actions that stray from God are acceptable. Maybe because a lot of other people are doing it. Maybe it's just a habit that you formed. Maybe it's just a kind of a one-time deal. When we start acting like those things don't show up on Christ's radar of things worthy of dying for, then he had no reason for dying at all. If he doesn't willingly die for the small things, I wouldn't care if he died for the big things either. But no, he says, I died for everything. All things, all sin, all shortcomings, every part of your life that you stray away from me, I died for those things. See, he calls out people that are a thousand miles away and he calls out the people that just turn around to look the other direction that contemplate walking away. It doesn't matter where you're at on that line. He calls you and says, come home. You're meant to be here. I will fill you up. This is serious stuff. And I want to read you something that when I was prepping and when I was praying over this message this past week, I read this thing by John Piper and he's talking about what being lost really means and the severity of it. And it just rocked me and it terrified me. And I want to share with you what it is. I'm just going to read it to you um, real quick for you this morning. The day before yesterday, county officials buried 68 bodies in Homewood Memorial Gardens just outside Chicago. Who were they? People who have nobody that knows or cares. They just die. Someone finds them on the street or in a park or in an alley or in a lonely tenement. The officials search for the relatives. The medical examiner's office waits and holds the bodies and no one comes forward to claim the bodies. A 180 foot long trench is dug at the cemetery and the wooden boxes are lined up next to each other and buried. No stone, no marker. This happens every month with 20 to 30 unclaimed people in Chicago. When I read that, what hit me was the lostness of so many people in our society. Lost from virtually everybody, surrounded by millions in Chicago, and not a single person seems to know or care when they die. This feels like absolute lostness. But it's not absolute lostness. Absolute lostness is when you're cut off from God. It is better to die unknown by every human in Chicago than to die unknown by God. And if we feel a fearful sense of alienation because of 68 forgotten people buried in a mass grave in Homewood, Illinois, how much more should we feel the fearful prospect of dying without God? See, Luke 15 is about the love of God coming into the cities and into the suburbs of our entire world to find lost sons and daughters.
So the first step towards home is admitting that we're lost. That's all. It doesn't end there, though. This leads us to the last key point, the last takeaway that I want to um, look at this morning. It's that this parable reveals true repentance. So in light of all of this bad news that's going on for the prodigal son, for this younger brother, it would be just foolish of me not to share with you the good stuff. The redeeming part of the story, the, the great news Verse 17 and 18 says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. But when he came to himself... When he finally realized what his life was adding up to, his mind was just absolutely changed. His life completely changed. He realized, I was never meant to be this far from my father. I was never meant to go this far astray. And the best news for anybody that has gone astray from Christ is that he, in his glorious grace and in his mercy, he extends forgiveness. And that, my friends, is a miracle. That he would extend forgiveness to people that rebelled against him. That's bringing something that was once dead back to life. And God the Father, he says this. He says, I want you home and I I will do absolutely anything and everything to get you back. He wants to save you. And by his grace, he calls us. He convicts us. He lifts our heads when we are hitting rock bottom. He turns our heads when we look the other way. He draws us closer and closer. And you want to know what the best thing is, is that when he calls us to come home, he doesn't say... um, I need you to really straighten this part of your life up. I need you to just pray this list of prayers. I need you to help this many people in their life. No, he says, God saves us from your sin. I save you from your sin. He pulls us out of the trenches. He breathes life into us. He builds in us this desire of righteous living. He stirs up in us repentance and true life change, the stuff that we think we can gain God through doing. No, he just gives that to us after he's already received us. And all this is possible because of his abundance of grace. We are saved by grace, my friends. We are alive because of grace alone. We are called children of God because of grace alone. And just praise Jesus that this is true. He calls for us to repent, to come back. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that is. Sometimes I pray for forgiveness. I ask for it, but I don't don't know if I really actually want it. I don't know what I'm being forgiven for sometimes. The question I have to ask myself, is my life a reflection of a repentant heart? The choices I make, the decisions I make, the people that I interact with, how I interact with them, is it a demonstration of a repentant heart? I kind of have this little definition. Um, it's not 
the true definition, but it's just kind of my take on true repentance. And I, I, I say this, true repentance means that your mind is completely changed. It means that your fundamental purpose and outlook on life is changed. In a radical sense, it means changing the desires of your heart and therefore ultimately changing the direction of your whole life. See, we turn away from the sin that we are living in and we turn toward Christ, trusting in Him alone for forgiveness and reconciliation. So the question I'm going to leave with you guys this morning is this. How far do you have to go before you realize you have to go home? How far do you have to go until you realize you have to go home? I pray and I just pray that your answer is no further than I am now. Just no further than I am now. Please, God. Let's go home, my friends. Let's go home. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good for allowing us to be here right now. For giving us one more day to come closer to you. Lord, I I pray that you, you show us your heart and in return you show us ours and say, I don't want you to be there. I don't want that to be your heart. I want you to have my heart, Lord, and I pray that we can receive that. I pray that what we do in our lives reflects your heart, not ours. Lord, I pray for those of us that have brought in a lot of junk or not that much. Lord, I ask that you relieve us of those burdens so that we can be fully in your presence. Lord, thank you for reaching out to people like us, the ones that that don't ever deserve your love, that don't ever deserve grace, but Lord, you extend it so mightily, so full and so perfectly that you call us home. And you don't only just call us home, you invite us to your table. You say, let me feast with you. Let me celebrate with you so that we can be a family, so we can be in perfect relationship again. And so you don't have to feel those burdens that you felt your entire life anymore. Lord, I want that. I want to be with you. I want to be in your courts. I want to be at your table feeding and feasting on your truth. On what you say in your word, Jesus. Lord, I pray every single day I can strive for that. I can strive for your righteousness and therefore go out in the world and just display your glory. Lord, I pray that what is true in here is true out in the world for us. That we don't forget about it right here. We bring it to our relationships, our families, our work. Lord, give us that courage. Give us that faithfulness. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.